Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, folks, um, we've got uh, another episode. We're back. Okay, uh, this is, uh, we took a pretty long hiatus. I think we had a pretty solid show last time when we covered, well, gee, we covered a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot of territory, and it was a long episode, And uh, but I think it was a valuable one. And uh, so today, keeping up with the news cycle, which is, uh, incredibly incredibly difficult to do we are uh, going to talk about the afghanistan papers report um the movie the uh, amazon original the report okay the movie uh about cia torture which is incredible and if you haven't watched it you must watch it and i think after hearing us talk about it if you haven't seen it you're still going to want to because you know there's not a lot of there's not a lot of surprises, you know, that we're, we can't give many spoilers because this is a, a true story. Um, I just think most listeners probably, or, or some listeners probably don't have the, the, the scope and the depth of the CIA torture report because it quickly faded from the news like everything does. And then we're going to finally get to impeachment. Okay, Donald Trump, the uh, third president to be impeached. Uh, fourth, if you count Nixon, although he was only impeached uh, by the Judicial Committee. And then once the Republicans turned on him, his own party, uh, he decided to resign. But so you can say basically four presidents have been impeached. Uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, uh, Lincoln's successor and uh, white supremacist. Uh, Bill Clinton, because blowjobs are terrible. And uh, Nixon, because he was a monster, and now Trump, because he said something on the phone, I guess. So this is where we're at. We're going to talk about impeachment. And I think it's important that we do, because this is the story, and we're not going to let this happen, but this is the story that's going to bury our first story, which is the Afghanistan Papers, okay? Uh, If the Afghanistan Papers are buried, and I think they're already starting to be, if this phase from the news cycle, we can and will blame it on the impeachment show because that's what it is show in washington and you know we'll probably argue about it and see what we all think because it is polarizing topic that being said we have uh you know the three of us right standard three but we also have ryan Keane back um ryan has been on the show in the past and and i think we even talked a little bit about impeachment sort of uh on that last show even though it hadn't happened yet we were talking about you know the whole concept of Russiagate and some of these things. And we talked about a lot of other issues as well. Um, Ryan is a veteran. He, uh, he served, he was a tanker, but he uh, served in the army uh, doing some significant detainee operations. Um, I'll let him sort of introduce himself 
in a second, and then I'll jump into the Afghanistan papers. But, you know, he is a, a prominent anti-war activist. Um, he's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. Um, physical and emotional struggles like all of us. Uh, he's got a lot to say. He's got a really interesting voice, um, you know, and a platform that I think is really important. And he's a prominent member of uh, About Face Veterans Against the War, which, of course, used to be uh, known as Iraq Veterans Against the War. And uh, so we, we became buddies through that organization. And uh, Ryan, do you just want to say uh, a few words about yourself before I jump right into the papers? Yeah, yeah this is uh, Ryan Keen. Um, this is my second time on the podcast. And I'm from Ohio. I was in the Ohio Army National Guard from 2002 until 2008. Um, I originally was a 19 kilo M1A1 Abrams tanker. Um, and then I reclassed to 11 Charlie infantry mortarmen. However, we were a combat arms um, unit full of tankers and infantry, and we deployed in uh, detainee operations with Task Force 134. I was stationed at Camp Cropper, which was a gray site in Baghdad, right outside of Biop, one of the three detainee facilities in Iraq, um, the only high-value detainee facility in Iraq. And I was there from January 2005 till December 2005, um, immediately following the Abu Ghraib scandal. And I am an anti-imperialist. And, and also I write poetry and try to bring some awareness to moral injury and suicide awareness and other mental health issues. Um, I am a disabled veteran with um, post-traumatic moral injury. So thank you. Yeah, you know what I really like is I like the way you identify yourself as a, an anti-imperialist, right? So, you know, I use the phrase anti-war, but I think in a sense, yours is a more holistic description that more of us should begin using because, you know, when you put yourself in the anti-war box, uh, the implication, I think, even though this shouldn't be the case, but the implication, the, the, the prominent public implication is that you're against a singular war, right? So uh, Vietnam, for example, if, you were, if, if someone said they were anti-war in 1967, everyone knew what they meant. Well, if you say you're anti-war in 2019, w w which war are you anti-Iraq, Afghanistan? What about the secret wars? What about the drone wars? What about the seven other countries we bomb and the 15 others we sometimes bomb? Like, so wh where are we? So I think, you know, because American wars today are so profuse, okay, in, in scope, and in, in, in geographic space, it is really valuable to say, I'm an anti-imperialist because it's the structural system of militarism. And, and part of the way you hide an empire is to treat individual conflicts as discrete and disconnected, right, from one another. When the reality, I think, uh, and I think this is what you mean by the term, the reality is it's all part of an imperial system. Um, uh, I, I would call it a late stage um, hyper capitalist uh, imperial system that we're in. So, th you know, thanks for using that term. I think it's really cool. So when we talk about empire, we like to keep everything connected. The United States doesn't like to do that. But anytime you talk about empire, there, there's usually some sort of canary in the coal mine moment. Uh, and there's also usually some sort of conflict that, stands out among all of them as the most representative, right, of the empire's failings. Uh, and I call this a late-stage empire, meaning I think we are in decline. And as I always say in interviews, uh, failing empires 
crumbling empires behave badly. Okay, all empires behave badly, but empires that are on the ropes, like cornered animals, tend to behave most badly. Which is why, when you look at the late stage British Empire, 1950s and 60s, they fought more guerrilla wars, more what they used to call dirty wars back in the day during that two decade period than probably all the other imperial wars they fought before. Not to say they didn't fight lots of imperial wars over the course of hundreds of years, but in the 1950s and 60s, I mean, I couldn't even name all the places where Britain was doing some sort of coin, some sort of counter guerrilla some sort of, you know, M- MI6 CIA type operation. Um, and I think that that's the stage that the United States is in. So, so for me, I think that the Afghanistan war is the empire in a nutshell, okay? The empire in microcosm. Partly because it's the longest war in American history. And partly because it is based in some ways on the greatest number of lies, fantasies, and delusions. Now, many of us have known this for a long time. I've been banging my head against the wall writing about Afghanistan since almost the day I came back in January of 2012. But those of us who were in the know, what we really did was we surmised that the war was based on lies. We surmised that the generals and the senior U.S officials were lying to us how how did we what do i mean by surmise we took our experiential you know uh our experiences and and we we melted those into current affairs reading what's going on questioning being skeptical and then the third pillar at least for me and i think for many of us who've been fighting the vietnam i mean the (laughs) afghan war for quite some time danny davis andy basevich etc um, the third pillar we brought into it was history, okay, placing Afghanistan's war uh, in the broader history of America's experience in Afghanistan and in the broader history of Afghanistan's uh, troubled relationship with empires throughout history. So that's, that's a long setup to say we were pretty sure that all this was based on lies and obfuscation uh, and, and, and delusion, quite frankly. Well, what we were handed a couple of weeks back was something called the Afghan Papers. And the Afghan papers I called in a, a couple of articles that I wrote on it, three articles that I wrote on the topic so far, uh, the Pentagon papers of our generation, okay? Uh, the Pentagon papers of my generation, of our generation as hosts on the show, as veterans, but really also our generation in a more general sense, meaning, you know, millennials and Generation Xers. This is our Pentagon papers. Now, of course, the Pentagon papers were um, released in 1971, uh, famous, probably perhaps the most famous American whistleblower of the 20th century, Daniel Ellsberg, who was a, a veteran himself. Then he went to work for the Rand Corporation, which is still around, still writing lots of reports for the U.S. government. Um, and, and what he stumbled upon, well, what he worked on at one point, and, and what he then stumbled upon in its totality and decided it had to be released was a very simple but very long document, even longer than the Afghanistan papers, uh, that, that the press labeled the Pentagon Papers. Now, the backstory on this, and I think it's a little important, is that Robert McNamara, who is one of the great architects of the Vietnam War, uh, one of the villains of the early Vietnam War, by the end of his tenure, just before 
he left the Johnson administration somewhat in disgrace. Um, he had already started having doubts about this war, um, not quite publicly yet, but he sensed that the war was not being won, that many of his assumptions and the other best and the brightest, as they've been called, in the Kennedy team, who most of them stayed on to be part of the Johnson team after the Kennedy assassination in November of 1963, many of their assumptions he realized were wrong. Uh, he started to be skeptical that the war could be won. And he ordered an internal study on the history. It was just a, it was basically a history story. It was a history document, the history of American involvement. OK, how did America get involved after World War II and how did it slowly get more and more sucked into the Vietnam War? It sounds like a rather simple story that wouldn't necessarily need to be classified and wouldn't necessarily be so controversial, except that what was unearthed in this study, and to, to McNamara's credit, he wanted the full story. I mean, he asked for the truth. Um, but then sometimes you've got to be careful what you ask for, right? So what we found out in the Pentagon Papers is, oh, my God, this entire war was based on lies, uh, poor suppositions, uh, you know, uh, just it was awful. I mean, it, it, it literally implicated every president from Truman you know, straight up to Johnson, because the document actually stops at the end of the Johnson administration. And it was it was suppressed, of course, right? It was buried away somewhere. Well, Ellsberg had worked on the document. Ellsberg uh, turned against the war, partly as a result of working on the document, I think. And uh, he decides in the early 1970s that this, this has to see the light of day. Of course, he leaks it famously, uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, this thing goes everywhere. There's a big court case. You know, the Nixon administration tries to suppress it, which is kind of weird because it doesn't totally even implicate Nixon because it stops before him. But, of course, he wants to maintain this war, his secret bombing in Laos and Cambodia. He has this madman theory that if, if we could just, you know, convince the North Vietnamese we're fucking crazy, then maybe they'll quit. Right. Which was itself a madman theory. Right. Inverted. And uh, anyway, so this is the story and it comes out and it's a fucking bombshell. Okay, and there's, of course, the movie The Post um, uh, covered that a few years back, covered the story of the Washington Post involvement with Ellsberg. We were just handed a couple of weeks ago the Pentagon Papers of our generation, and it's the Washington Post again, in conjunction with The Intercept, we must say. Okay, and I think that's important because I'm not sure that the, quite the flavor it does if this was not done in conjunction with an alternative media source, a more trustworthy alternative media source like The Intercept. Okay, but the Washington Post gets the big scoop. Again, it's kind of interesting, right? Um, the comparison is almost, um, it's almost staggering. But anyway, what these, how many documents, guys? Do you know 600 something? Is, how, many, how many memos or documents or interviews are in it? Does anyone know the number approximately? I think it was right around 700. So yeah, this is a big treasure trove of um, memos and, uh, and, and lots of interviews. Okay. Um, interviews done somewhat in secret, not publicly, not on fucking MSNBC, right? Um, between uh, an inspector general, um, there's something called the um, CIGAR, the Special uh, Investigative General for Afghanistan Reconstruction or something like that, right? It's, it's, it, this is a, an organization that's supposed to have some sort of top cover and have some sort of, um, you know, oversight function. And, and, and we can get into that later. 
they hold all these interviews with uh, mostly generals, uh, colonels, senior colonels, and also some U.S. officials, civilian officials who have, were who were deeply involved in the Afghan war. You know, from 2001 up till really the present, which is one of the interesting things about the Afghan documents is they come, I think, even further into the present than the Pentagon Papers did. And these papers, just like the Pentagon Papers, do a lot of things. First, they too implicate three administrations, mostly Bush and Obama, but a little bit of Trump too, in lies, in false data uh, provided to them by the generals and then from them to the media and from the media to us, right? This is how the channel works. Um, You know, misrepresentations of success. That's the key to the Afghanistan papers is what they did, what they do is show us that from the level of the colonel, which is basically the lowest ranking people that they mostly interviewed, although I would argue this goes all the way down to the captain because I played this game too, which I'll talk about later. Everyone was implicated up and down the chain from White House to brigade commands in false data, okay, which is a crime, providing false data, juking the stats, right? Um, uh, Glowing reports that they didn't really believe, um, false representations of success. um, And we found out through the interviews part, which was a little different from the Pentagon Papers and I think even more interesting, we found out that a lot of these folks who, when they were on duty, because many of them are retired, although not all, Mark Milley, I'll get into that, right? Current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and well-known liar and incompetent, um, especially after these papers, we know that. Uh, don't come after my pension, Mark, okay? It's all, in, it's, all in, it's all in good fun, okay? I'm a big, I'm a nostalgia, nostalgist for free speech, okay? And I, I really need my pension. I really need it, okay? I've got two kids. Anyway, uh, known liar and incompetent, Mark Milley, who's definitely coming from my VA benefits at some point after the show, we found out from all these generals that while they were serving, okay, because many of these interviews occurred years ago, okay, so they're telling the public one thing when they go on TV, when, they, when, the, when the Pentagon does their press briefings, et cetera, and when they're talking to the media, they were saying one thing, we're making progress, light at the end of the tunnel, turn a corner, right? It's like if you, if you turn enough corners, though, what happens if you turn a corner three times, you make a fucking square and you start going in a circle, right? And that's what we really did because we kept saying, well, we're turning a corner. No one ever said that it was like, you know, going in a circle. But the bottom line is what we know is that what they said was happening to the public did not even jive with what they really believed. Because many of these interviews say that actually we knew the war was off the rails. I mean, some of the quotes are incredible. Like, you know, there's guys like Doug Lute saying we didn't have the faintest idea what we were doing. <gasps> Doug Lute, you were the Afghan war czar. Czar, like a fucking Russian monarch of the Afghan war. That's what they called you in America. Guys, can we just talk about that for a second? I digress, but I'm sorry. In America, Obama in particular, likes to appoint people to be czars of shit. There's like, well, Clinton did it too. Remember, General McAfee was the drug czar, you know? And then Doug Lute for both Bush and Afghanistan, the White House called them. He was a retired general, retired three-star, and a smart guy, by the way. They called him the Afghan war czar. I don't like that term. It doesn't have the same relevance. I think we need to substitute, like, new words for it. Like, here's a good one. Like, 
how about the Afghan war Fuhrer? You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that have, like, to me, that would be more powerful. Like, like anyway, uh, if you're listening, Trump, change the term. Fuhrer would be appropriate, especially for you. Okay, so Doug Lute, who's the, the war czar, okay, the guy who's overseeing the war, he's the point man for the White House, which, by the way, I heard is the top of our government, for two different administrations, which is rare, he was saying while he was serving, and then especially after he was serving, that we didn't have the faintest idea what our strategy was in Afghanistan or what we were doing. And he's, of course, one of only dozens of people to say this. What does this all tell us before I turn it over for discussion? It tells us that what we had all surmised, remember what I was talking about earlier, has now been backed up by cold, hard facts. And for a moment, we all love our guilty pleasures. Mine are mostly romantic comedies with Keira Knightley in them. We all have our guilty pleasures. But my guilty pleasure for about 13 seconds, right, was like a baker's dozen worth of seconds. You guys get what I'm saying? Was to say, I'm vindicated. I am so vindicated. See, I was right all along. I was right to write all those articles about Afghanistan. I've been vindicated. That lasted about 13, maybe 14 seconds. You know, I was a little, I was allowing myself some, some vindication space. And then I was just sad, deeply morose. Because, like I said earlier, you got to be careful what you ask for. McNamara was, you know, he was, uh, he should have been careful what he asked for with those Pentagon papers. And so should the special and, you know, the cigar. And so was I, because being vindicated also meant that all my worst fears, all my worst um, suppositions about our government and the lies that have prolonged now uh, a war that's in its 19th year turned out to have been not only true, but perhaps worse than we thought. So that's what the Afghanistan papers are. That's a long introduction, but I like to think it's a better introduction than most papers probably gave you. Um, because if you don't know the key terms like Pentagon Papers, like Seagar, and if, and if you don't define the terms, which a lot of uh, media doesn't do because they only have like 800 words, right, to give you the story. Um, so much better for uh, the prince or, or the Fuhrer of verbosity, Danny Shorson, to give it to you. And, and, and with that, let's, let's just all jump in. Yeah, what, what, what most shocked you guys what, what do you want to talk about? Like, you read this, and what did, what did you guys think? I think one of the biggest things that really, it was, I, like you said, it's nothing that those of us who've been paying attention haven't asked, but it's nice to actually see it on paper and to see people who were a part of it say these things. And so Nicholas Burns, uh, he's a U.S. diplomat who served as an ambassador to NATO under Bush. He said, after 03 and 04, once we were fully engaged in both wars, I can't remember us ever saying, should we be there? Are we being useful? Are we succeeding? And then like, what the fuck? Like, that is the most fundamental question that you should ask about any kind of operation, right? Like, are we doing something that we said that we were going to do? And this is like two or three years after we started. And they weren't even asking those questions. And, <laughs> and then fast forward to when Obama, you know, completely flipped the script because Bush's whole thing, you know, was on counterterrorism. It was like, find the terrorists, get them, kill them, or extraordinary rendition, i.e. kidnapping, uh, get them out of there. 
And then Obama was like, no, we need to switch to the counterinsurgency model, you know, and the whole quote unquote hearts and minds bullshit that actually never changed anything. And they, but they never, they never stopped to ask continually those fundamental questions of, are we being successful? What are we doing here? Is, is, are our goals being achieved? Like they never fucking asked that question. And it, uh, it's just ridiculous that, you know, up and down the chain, the people who tried to ask those questions were not taken seriously. And the people at the higher up were like, well, we've committed to the strategy, so we just need to keep doing it. And I'm like, I don't know. That, that just seems it's so immature and, you know, not very well thought out. Yeah, I, I really like what you're saying. And um, because I love to coin terms, because I think I'm clever and have an ego, uh, I like to label what you're describing as uh, war inertia, right? War inertia, I think that's what you're describing. But yeah, that, yeah. that's a really great point. What, what do the rest of you guys think? So I am not shocked at all by anything reported. Um, if anything, I would say it's a day late and a dollar short. I mean, you have a ultra capitalist, neoliberal Jeff Bezos in the Washington Post, you know, about two decades too late on this report for hundreds of thousands of Afghanis, Iraqis, and, you know, thousands of Americans as well. Um, Afghanistan has been known as the graveyard, as the graveyard of empires. Um, when Danny asked about the strategy for Afghanistan or the, you know, there never really was a strategy for Afghanistan. Well, I, I disagree. I mean, the strategy is clearly capitalism, um, exploiting resources, um, committing horrendous war crimes and atrocities on black and brown folks. Um, and this goes back to 1492. I mean, this is, this is nothing new. This is the military industrial complex and hyper capitalism and empires. Um, they just, they do this all throughout history. I mean, we've, we've been warned by Smedley Butler and war is a racket um, back in the 1920s and thirties, you know, part of the Monroe doctrine. Then the last general ever elected president which I don't know if this was uh, symbolic that he was the last general ever elected president, but Dwight Eisenhower on his farewell speech, um, he warned us of the implications and the disastrous um, trajectory we were taking with this military industrial complex and building an empire. And then you have the Pentagon Papers and now the Afghan papers. Um, I, don't, I don't see anything changing at all. All I see is the mainstream media um, trying to bury anything that has to do with the military industrial complex. And I believe there's no doubt it is due to capitalism and profits and their corporate overlords and elitists. They um, I read an interesting article today, changing directions here a little bit. Um, it was on the Hill by Rory Riley Topping, and it was called The Impact of the Afghanistan Papers on Veterans. Now, there was a 
postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Family Research at George Washington University. His name was Jeffrey A. J. And in 1978, he wrote an article or a paper called After Vietnam in Pursuit of Scapegoats. And I'd just like to read a little quick um, quotation from that paper. He said, my talks with veterans convince me that their problems are not so simple, nor so easily addressed. The veterans' conflicts are not his or her alone, but bound to the trauma and guilt of the entire nation. And our failure to deal with our guilt renders the veteran the symptom carrier for society and increases his or her moral and emotional burden. This burden isolates the veteran and will freeze them in an attitude of perpetual combat until the issues of war are confronted in the national conscious. He also would add that isolation, um, burdens of conflicted feelings, and not being heard make people crazy, not just in war. You know, the, the suicide rates... Um, for veterans are astronomical and it's an epidemic. You know, the mental health injury sustained, which I believe Jeffrey J was pretty much hitting moral injury spot on. Um, you know, it, it trickles down to substance abuse, homelessness, relationship issues, employment issues. And I believe um, in three concepts for mental health, self-acceptance, self-awareness, and self-control. And you can do this with anything aspect of life or any problem. Um, but I believe that most veterans, and this is why the suicide and mental health injuries rates is astronomical. Um, most veterans are either not self-aware that, you know, that this war was a failure and that they were pawns in a capitalist imperialist game. Or I think more fall into this category. They might be aware of that deep down, but they are not self-accepting of it. Thinking about uh, the blood, sweat, and tears of, you know, your fellow comrades in battle um, lost over some profits for some elite corporists. Um, the mainstream media, I believe it's like a secular cycle where the corporations, the elitists, the bourgeoisie, they echo the message, the propaganda to the propaganda wing and down to the politicians who also echo that to the MSM. Now also the imperialism propagandist wing has to do with our education and our history books and the lack of context and the lack of perspective. Um, I mean, this is a systemic problem that has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats. This is not new for Afghanistan or Iraq. This is the blueprint of the United States empire. And it's just absolutely tragic. Um, you know, how many lives and limbs, mostly of brown and black folks, um, have been lost due to this. And it's just brushed over um, completely by the mainstream media. And I believe intentionally, um, I, don't, I don't believe they aren't aware, but I believe they are intentionally not 
accepting the realities of this. I mean, it's, it's tragic, but I'll pass with that. Well, Ryan, I like what you said about the effect of all this on veterans um, and how issues with moral injury and PTSD, they linger after the fact. And I think what you're saying is they can be uh, heightened, amplified, catalyzed um, by the sense of, you know, carrying the burden of fighting in wars that are clearly illegal, clearly immoral, um, clearly unwinnable potentially never even meant to be won from the start. I mean, some of these wars, I think, were never really meant to be won. They were just meant to be continued. Um, so far as Lockheed Martin is concerned, or Honeywell here in Kansas City, um, I mean, And the lack of good confirmation business. by society, which, you know, that starts usually through the MSM, the mainstream media, and there's just no accepting that we are failed. We, we have done these military operations that are complete failures and complete travesties and absolutely horrendous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just for me, you know, like, uh, you know, one of my triggers is, is to drink, you know, like it's you know something I enjoy, but it's something that can, can easily go off the rails for me and has in the past. Um, you know, in the wake of the Afghan papers, I was super busy for a few days because I got solicitations from just about everybody to write about it. I wrote, I wrote three articles in like 24 hours. It's just a lot. And uh, but I mean, after, I mean, but after that, you know, like I said, I allowed myself to be vindicated for a moment. And then I went off the fucking rails and I was on like a fucking four day bender, you know, to the extent that I, you know, I might on like a cleanse after that, you know, because I was I was triggered by the whole thing, you know, instead of feeling good about it. I was like, oh, my God, all my worst nightmares have been confirmed. Like, the world is a dark place. Fuck everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I think that there's a lot of veterans. We all respond to it differently, but that's where I go. And I think there are other veterans who go there like me. So I think that's an important point. But, uh, um, Henry, when you, you know, we, we, we chatted about it back and forth. And I know you read, you know, my pieces on it. When, when you woke up that morning and, and re you know, read the first, you know, the, the first article on it before you dug into the primary source, what crossed your mind first? Well, the first thing that I saw about it was, wasn't anything that directly referenced the papers themselves. It was from the Daily Beast, and it was David Petraeus's explanation, if we want to call it that, of what, what, um, his 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 defense mechanism for dealing with the reality that the that a lot of this information had come out, um, and I you know it was, it was like a, a just press release bullshit, but it, it's funny you know he's you, I never saw him quite so easily triggered. It was like that it was it was so raw and and it un undid so many of the band-aids that he was a part of that that was had to be out there first um i did find an article from fair um the media watchdog fair and accuracy and reporting that they were talking about it, it it's very curious as to that the washington post having spent almost the entirety of the war on terror entirely in support of it um that now they were actually forced in order to do this new coverage to have a little bit of of self-discovery and fair had mentioned how that a survey they did um, for the three weeks following the september 11th attacks found out that columns calling for 
or assuming a military response to the attacks were given a great deal of space, or opinions urging diplomatic and international law approaches as an alternative to military action were nearly non-existent. You then move to another study they did. This was from 2009. And at that point, this was November 2009, pro-war columns outnumbered anti-war columns by more than 10 to 1 of 67 post columns on U.S. military policy in Afghanistan. uh, 61 continued war, while just six expressed anti-war views. And I I think that that really needs to be pointed out that the Post, along with the New York Times, have walked hat in hand through the entirety of the war on terror and its many different iterations. And now they're trying to set themselves in a better place politically to defend many of the lies that they told or at least um, added a, a megaphone to. Um, I was I was floored by the number of memos among the documents that talked purely about the cost of the wars, especially about comparisons between the per soldier cost of an American soldier, an Iraqi soldier, and an Afghan soldier, and then of course the 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 war math of how many Afghan soldiers can get trained for the cost of training one American soldier or an American Marine, um, and it 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 really puts puts it in perspective how you know that they were they were without having any real planning they were just expecting that the snowball rolling down the hill would just continue getting bigger and bigger but go in the direction that they wanted it to and the snowball did indeed get bigger but it didn't do anything like it was expected to another thing that stuck out to me was the the copy and paste mentality of how things were being analyzed and the one that stuck out the most was that they were comparing standards of operations in the war on terror and specifically about nation building to post-World War II Germany. And, you know, there, there's, I don't know how many millions of differences between that occupation following the World War II and what we were doing in Afghanistan, but it, it Danny, I know you and I have talked about this before, that the, the military mindset is is such a, a, a copy and paste one. We think that the old operation is going to tell us everything we need to know about the new operation. And then that ignorance continues to build on itself until we arrive at this point where everyone's standing around saying, I don't know how we got here, when it's perfectly obvious why we got here. Yeah, I, I think the military mentality of... Um, loyalty to the mission, blind loyalty to the mission, um, blind loyalty to the process, trust the process, right? Keep, stay the course, as George H.W. Bush used to say about policy. It's, it's alive and it's well, it's, uh, it's dangerous. And, and it, it lacks all historical context. And, you know, I know we have to transition to our other two topics uh, pretty soon, but you know, I wrote a, a rather long 5,000-word article comparing the uh, Afghan war and the lies of the generals in the Afghan war to America's second longest war, what had been its longest war before the Afghanistan war, which was called the Morrow War. It was a subset of America's counterinsurgency or you know, imperial campaign in the Philippines, right? America's largest overseas 
uh, colony and its history. Uh, no one's ever heard of the Moral War. There are seven books on Amazon that deal with it in any um, unique or totality sense. Um, there are over 10,000 on the Vietnam War, just to give you a concept of it. Even scholars don't know about this war. I do, because I'm a hyper geek. I'm the Fuhrer of geeks, which is for <laughs> everything. I'm the Fuhrer of everything from now on, just so you know. And I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I get an anti-defamation league. I don't actually like Hitler. It's funny. Some shit's just funny, okay? Anyway, sorry. And just before I get, you know, I mean, my career is torpedoed already. I mean, I, I defended Trump against impeachment, you know, just yesterday. So it's over for me at this point. Uh, no, but I, I wrote about the moral war. And, um, yeah, we're through the looking glass, Alice. Right. This Bernie bro just defended Trump. It's a pretty, yeah. Up is down. Dogs are cats. Right. So the point of the moral war is this. It was America's second longest war. It used to be the longest war. It goes on for 14 years. Actually, it kind of is still going on because we still, like in the last decade, have had Green Berets like helping the Filipino government continue to try to suppress uh, Moro, which is the Muslim Filipinos in the South, their separatism and their Islamism, right? They don't, they've never wanted to be part of the Philippines. They want to be their own thing. Philippines and then America and then the Philippines were like, nah, no thanks. Like, you, you got to be under us because we said so. And even though you live on fucking unique islands that could clearly run themselves that that can't be allowed the whole archipelago has to be one even though that makes no geographic sense but nevertheless this is the war well here's the thing the pantheon of important early 20 20th century generals okay uh from the generals who served from about 1900 to all the way up to george marshall in 1945 every single one of those chief of staffs essentially served in the moral war in one sense or another so they all kept getting promoted you know, in fact, the, the best job to have if you wanted to someday be chief of staff of the army was to command the division of the Philippines. And the best job to have in order to get command of the entire Philippines militarily was to was to have command of the Moros, Moro land, they called it the Southern Islands, because that's where the most fighting or the most sustained fighting was. Uh, so it was like if you, if you commanded that, the next logical step was to be the commander of the whole Philippines. And then usually the general that was the commander of the whole Philippines went, went back to the United States. Uh, and became the head of the chief of staff. I went back to D.C. So five of them actually did this. Well, I'm just going to like rattle off real quick these guys, and I promise to keep it as short as I can. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not going to follow that promise. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm twice divorced. I mean, come on, I promised God and then broke that. So, but anyway, I'm going to try to be not so verbose. But it, we have this guy called uh, Leonard Wood, right? Uh, Leonard Wood uh, has a base in Missouri named after him where the chemical engineer and military police are headquarters. Is that right, Henry? Cor correct. Yeah, yeah. So he was a, a, a lunatic, and um, he was the most brutal. He, he was the guy who was like the, I don't know, the, the Ray Ordiano before he became a coin guy, the, um, you know, you know, he was, he was one of these, we got to be tough on them, you know, like, like a lot of the generals early in the Afghan and Iraq wars were, right, before the enlightened Petraeus came, right? So that's what he did. And he said after he left, after he killed tens of thousands of Moros, uh, largely women and children, and massacres, by the way, massacres, not battles. We call them battles, they're massacres. Um, he said, hey, look, the, the war's just about over, guys. That's the report he gave to Washington. And so Washington gave that report to the press, and the press wrote it. So then this guy named Tasker Bliss takes over. <gasps> We've heard of him, too, right? Tasker Bliss, Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas, right? Home of America's only tank division, right? or its only armored division. His first cast on the tank division, too. But anyway, um, he comes in, and he's the Petraeus of the group, right? 
he's the first to try us. He's like, no, no, what we really have to do is like work with the locals. We don't need to do large operations. We need to do like small operations, not the big punitive massacres that Wood did. And he has some success. I mean, he never really suppresses moral nationalism, uh, but he brings violence down a little bit. He kills a few less of them or a lot less of them and less of his guys die. And he looks really enlightened. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, we've got it. Right? The ports to D.C. Hey, things are going well. The war's just about, just about over. Not, not quite, though. Almost. We're getting there. And then, of course, the media printed that. So this goes on and on. I mean, and we keep rotating back and forth between guys who are like Wood, who want to, like, just kill everybody, and guys who are like Bliss, who want to, like, do this counterinsurgency thing. Just like we kept switching back, before, back and forth between killers and then the Petraeus McChrystal, oh, hearts and minders, even though there was a lot of killing done under their commands. So I'm mean, not going to go through all through the reports of all of them, but like, let's just go through some of the names of the guys that took over one after the other, all of whom except one became chief of staff of the army, uh, the highest position available in the military at the time. And, and the other one, the sixth guy that I'm going to mention, I mentioned two already, he became the assistant chief of staff. So he got to the second highest level. So we got five guys who rose to the highest level of the army, Sixth guy who came to the as close as you could get uh, to being chief of staff, and and all of them lied because we had their internal memos, right? I've read them or the excerpts of them in my research, and it's the same goddamn thing. And that's why Ryan, you're right. We're teaching the wrong history. Like I should be streamed into every TV, fucking Orwell 1984 style, to just fucking banter about this stuff because i could teach the american people the american children and people better than anybody because i actually fucking connect the dots right and there's other good historians like me out there i mean i'm not the only one just no one reads our shit though you know washington post isn't going to print my fucking article on the moral war five thousand words that basically devastates the afghan war by showing that we've seen this movie before and we should have learned but we never do so hugh drum is another guy who uh, commands in the Philippines and says everything's going great in public, but then in his private papers and memos, he says it's actually not. Uh, Hugh Drum, Fort Drum, New York, home of the 10th Mountain Division. You seeing a pattern, guys? Uh, you know, and uh, uh, we also have Hugh Scott. Okay, he doesn't have a base named after him, but he becomes chief of staff of the Army. And who is our favorite? John J. Pershing, right? John J. Pershing, who doesn't have a base named after him, but does become chief of the staff of the Army, but only after only after he um, commands all American expeditionary forces in World War One, right? The largest command uh, of American soldiers in, uh, in terms of numbers in, in the country's history, right, up to that point. And, and it's only been uh, overtaken by World War II, right? And then finally, World War II, George Marshall's the chief of staff. Now, George Marshall didn't command the Philippines because he's too young, but George Marshall's first combat assignment is as a lieutenant in the fucking Philippines. So all these guys are complicit in these lies, just like all the generals of today are complicit in the lies of the Afghan war. Like I said, we've seen this movie before, but what's the common denominator? The common denominator, and the reason nothing's going to change, whether it's the moral war or the Afghan war, is because there's no consequences. There's no consequences for being wrong, for being incompetent, or for being a liar. Because every one of those generals in the moral war went on to fame, fortune, and the highest commands, and just about every one of the generals who's quoted and shown to have been lying in the Afghan papers has already or is still going to reach the pinnacle of the army today. Now, of course, the Philippines, to topographically 
environmentally looks different from Afghanistan, and you can't draw tactical lessons necessarily from the Philippines, but you can draw strategic ones. So at the head of our army today, at the head of our military, is Mark Milley. Mark Milley, back when he was in Afghanistan many years ago, was giving glowing reports on the war. Well, that means either he's incompetent because he didn't understand what every other interviewee seems to have privately understood, which is that we didn't know what the fuck we were doing even in 2002. Thanks, Rumsfeld, because even he said that. Or he's a liar. So the chairman of the Joint Chiefs right now is either incompetent or a liar. Probably both. Right, probably a little bit of both. He's a little shake and bake, like most generals. With that, I yield the floor. Um, Ryan, thank you for bringing up history. Henry, thank you for bringing up the military culture of just positivity, uh, delusional positivity, I would argue. And uh, yeah, if anyone has any more comments on this, throw them in. And then I think we probably ought to transition because, as always, uh, we're we're we're, we're kind of over on time. And clearly, I had nothing to do with that, so I blame you guys. <laughs> the guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. Uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Lorenz, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Well, I feel like a good segue would be just to segueing into our conversation about the CIA report about torture is just, you know, the point that we made before, just that institutionally we have no memory 
And we also, all of our institutions, like whenever there's a mistake, they solely exist to cover their own asses. And that's what we saw with the military in the presentation um, of Afghanistan and just always trying to paint a rosy picture over something that wasn't rosy at all. And the same thing with the CIA when it came to the torture and uh, the, uh, ex the uh, sorry, enhanced interrogation techniques and the extraordinary rendition program and saying how effective it was when it absolutely was not effective one bit. <laughs> and, and all three of these topics today from the Afghanistan papers to the report um, documentary to the next topic of impeachment to me, they all are completely connected and tie in. Um, Nancy Pelosi, who is the figurehead for this um, elitist, charade, smoke and mirrors, horse and dog and pony show of impeachment, she was on the House Intelligence Committee um, and knew of the tortures going on as far back to 2004. And, you know, I stated on the last um, time I was on the podcast, she said there was no chance um, and no reason for impeachment for President George W. Bush. Um, right now, we I, I believe that things like the report in the Afghanistan papers are buried by um, emotion-driven neoliberal politics on the mainstream media, divisive politics to keep the proletarian class down. Um, we are in seven active military operations with seven countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, which recently um, the OPCW report came out and they were suppressing the Duma evidence evidence and tampered with evidence about their lies on chemical weapons and chlorine, which were completely unfounded. Um, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Niger. Um, we just cut $30 billion in the supplemental nutrition, um, the SNAP program to feed. Uh, 2.5 million are affected. In 2019, Nancy Pelosi and the corporate um, imperialist Democrats and the imperialist Republicans both approved Trump, who now they're saying is corrupt and abusing power, $716 billion for the defense budget. Well, guess what? It just a couple days ago passed in the House 86 to, or I'm sorry, in the Senate, 86 to 8 for $700 and $38 billion to include money for Space Force, the Southern border wall, um, just some earmarks out of that 738 billion. There's 635 billion going to the Pentagon. There's 71.5 billion um, going to war spending. There's 23.1 billion going to nuclear weapons programs. There's 5.3 billion going to military bases, um, you know, but they cut 30 billion from a, a food program for the, the, the most infected and by imperialism and capitalism communities in America. 
And none of this, none of this, whether it's the Afghan papers, the report on torture or anything gets a hundredth or a thousandth of the coverage of this impeachment impeachment charade. I mean, you have protests right now, massive protests in Iraq, in Chile. We have in Bolivia a U.S.-led coup against Evo Morales and the Mas Party, um, Operation Condor Part 2. You know, in Venezuela, we had a U.S. coup recently. In Lebanon, pro-U.S. forces and pro-Saudi forces are trying to disrupt um, an anti-corruption protest. In France, you have a general strike. Now, you might hear some on the media about Hong Kong, and why is that? Well, because in Hong Kong, there are now reports coming out that the U.S.-backed Ukrainian neo-Nazi fascists are showing up in Hong Kong as disruptors and agent provocateurs, proxy to the United States imperialists. You know, I've seen reports recently about a Russian ship being aggressive off our East Coast. Wow, this is something that Russia does all the time. And you know why Russia does that all the time? Because we have freaking warships and warplanes in the Black Sea and completely surrounding Russia. So how are they acting aggressive? Where Where is the opposite, you know, context to this? The U.S. just recently, another thing I haven't hardly seen reported, we dubbed Nicaragua a national security de- threat, as well as Trump designating the Mexican cartels as terrorists, making both Nicaragua and Mexico open to non-legislative, executive-ordered military operations. You know, the Saudi Air Force did an attack on a U.S. military base, a domestic U.S. military base, and it was swept under the rug quicker than anything I've ever seen and labeled as a mass shooting with no real investigation into the Saudi family or the Saudi military and what they had to do in it. Um, You know, but we don't investigate either when they assassinate journalists and embassies. So that's, that's not shocking. Um, On on the democratic debates, no Democrats except Tossie Gabbard, including Bernie are talking foreign policy or talking about any of these things. Um, It's, it's just, I don't, it's all propagandist. It's capitalism run amok. And I will pass with that. Well, you know, you know, I'm the background guy, um, the context guy. The report we're referring to and, and is a movie called The Report. Check it out. Really, really check it out. Like it's, it's one of those rare movies, but listeners, that is, uh, is capable of forever altering even an educated, even an enlightened uh, citizen's view of their own nation. That's the effect it had on me, right? Even though there was nothing really particularly new presented that I didn't know, um, it was still a shock. It was a shock to the system. The report they're referring to is uh, Barbara Boxer, senator from California at the time, no longer with us. Uh, I mean, in the Senate, she, I think she's still on Earth. She's probably hiking somewhere in California right now with, you know, with like her, like, million dollar dogs or whatever she has because she's rich just like all of them but to her credit she uh, leads an investigation into the cia's enhanced interrogation techniques eits Ooh, eits take the life out of the word torture it's the most american thing that we do 
is like we should be called the United States of euphemism because we are like amazed at renaming something and taking the life out of it, you know? Like even like PTSD, right? Like I'm glad we understand it more now. But like don't you think that like as George Carlin said that like veterans might have gotten care like quicker if we still called it shell shock, you know? Like that that that's a that's a tough word, you know? PTSD, right? Torture. That resonates. Holy fuck, we're torturing people. No, 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 no. John Yu, a relatively unqualified nobody in the uh, White House, you know, legal counsel department for the Justice Department. He said in the memos, no, it's not torture. No, he played with the words. He called it enhanced interrogation techniques. You can slap people. You can put them in coffins with insects on their bellies. That's fine. That's not torture, right? You can keep them awake until they go insane. You could douse them with cold water until one of them actually freezes to death, which happened. Hypothermia, right? We saw that. You'll see that in the report. Well, you know, Boxer looks into this, right? And she appoints like a staffer, one of her senior staffers, a super dedicated dude who basically goes insane himself from the agony of working on this report, investigating the CIA for years, several years. The question, of course, was uh, there was two key questions. Um, one, three, sorry, three. One, uh, was what the CIA was doing torture? Like, was it illegal? Because torture is illegal, right? In international law, it's like very illegal. It's also illegal in domestic law, so it's, it's illegal. The second is, did, did, did it work, right? Did it work? That was an important question, even though it shouldn't matter because torture should still be illegal. Even if it does work, it doesn't, we found out. And three, did the CIA know whether it, that it didn't work? Right. So boom, 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 boom. So, of course, the answer is EITs were certainly torture. Right. Two, um, it didn't work. And three, the CIA knew it didn't work, had done their own investigation that they then classified. But this guy found in his, you know, troving through their documents and they lied about it, which is the fourth thing. So torture did we that we did torture. It didn't work. The CIA knew it didn't work. And then they lied to the American people and the government and the president about it. OK, I mean, Bush is a monster and should have been impeached and should be, uh, uh, you know, you know, held at Nuremberg trials. But in this report movie and in the CIA report, Bush isn't even the worst guy. Because what it showed is that, like, he wasn't even getting full information from his own government. Wait, there's a term for that, isn't there? You guys watch Fox News. There's a term for that when, like, the government operates independently, unelected, and can actually, like, stifle a president. What they want to do is it called – it starts with a D. D. Deep state. Deep state, right? That's what it's called, I think. I mean, this is what it's all about, right? And like the Afghanistan papers, there were two – major conclusions and with that i'm going to turn it over okay but conclusion one is that it is very hard to get such reports made public okay the cia and even the obama administration because that's who was president while this was going on this while most of this investigation was going on tried very hard to suppress it like really hard like really really hard like you can't you can't name names of people who were involved. You, you know, we have to redact it. I mean, they redacted some pages of this report when it finally when they were trying to release it so much that there were like four words 
on a page that weren't redacted and they were like prepositions, you know, like end, you know, it's like, ooh, end four, two, I'm horrified, right? You know, so sometimes I tried to do that, but, but Boxer, to her credit, carefully, very carefully, very politically astutely, very politely, but eventually, boldly gets this report out, or at least the summary of the report. And it's fucking scathing. So the first thing is it's really hard to get reports like this out because one of the things we didn't mention about the Afghanistan papers, it took the Washington Post like, what, two years three. to even get these like out? Three years, right? That's crazy, right? This should have been public immediately. Like nothing in this is, is worthy of classification, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just factual strategic data. We're not given the names of like fucking CIA assets in goddamn Kandahar, right? But they still fought it, right? We don't like a bad news story. Well, the CIA fucking hates a bad news story. CIA directors and senior chiefs, they literally wake up and have nightmares. They wake up in fucking cold sweats. And, and they don't have nightmares about boogeyman or dying or heights or public speaking. They have nightmares about the church committee. Oh, my God. The church <laughs> committee in the 70s when Frank Church actually, in public hearings, investigated and showed that the CIA had failed at every major operation that they had undertaken since the Cold War, since their, their, their creation in 1947. They had done illegal things and had never, ever succeeded, right? So instead of getting rid of the CIA, everyone forgot about the church committee. But the CIA didn't forget. The ghost of Frank Church haunts, haunts CIA headquarters. And that makes me happy. Okay, so they don't want this out. The second thing that's similar, second conclusion about the paper, I mean about the report, and, and, and that I think is relevant to the Afghanistan papers, because remember I told you that in the Moral War, and in the Afghan war, there was no consequences, right? These liars, these incompetents, these failures, like they didn't win. They knew they weren't winning, and then they lied about it, right? But they all kept getting promoted, whether it was in the Moral War, where they all became chiefs of staff and got bases named after them forever in perpetuity. Um, or they became, you know, or, or today they became, you know, ma major four-star generals, retire with great pensions, and then go work for fucking Halliburton, whatever they do, you know? whatever floats their boat as, um, you know, imperialist monsters. But there was, no, there was also no consequences in the CIA report. So the torture report comes out, and who's implicated in it? Everyone. Every senior CIA officer who went on to be director, who went on to be top levels in, in that bureaucracy, they're all implicated. And my favorite, if Mark Milley is my favorite implicator, which is a word I just made up, but should be added to Webster's Dictionary because it's fucking awesome. <laughs> the, the number one uh, implicator of, for me, for the Afghanistan papers is Mark Milley, right? Because he's currently chief of staff, right? Chairman. In the CIA torture report, who is the number one implicator? I can't say it the same way ever. Scratch what I said about Webster's. It's a horrible word. Is John Brennan. John Brennan is implicated in the report, right? He's implicated. Now, they, 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 they redact that as much as possible in the report. But we now know in the movie shows, and any deep dive into this topic in pro shows, Brennan is totally implicated, and he lied. Because if you remember when he went in front of Congress to get, um, you know, uh, what do they call it? Uh, when Congress sanctions, they go hearings and they have to get approved. What's that called? Okay. That doesn't matter. What, when, when Congress approves him to be CIA director. Oh, uh, nominated. Yeah, right. When he gets nominated and then he gets approved or whatever they call that word. Um, Confirmed. 
Confirmation hearings. Confirmed. <laughs> confirmed. Sorry. Sorry. Just my head's everywhere, man. You know what I mean? Impeachment. America falling apart. Climate change. No grandkids are going to live. It's just my, my brain's everywhere. <laughs> anyway, John Brennan, the big question that was being asked in whatever year, second term of Obama's administration after Panetta leaves, is did you have anything to do with the torture program? Because by then it was pretty infamous, right? Even by American standards. And Brennan lied. He kept saying, no, no, no. I spoke out against it from the start. I was the good guy. When I was a senior leader, but not quite at the top, and all this EIT torture was going on, I was against it. And he said that over and over again, publicly on MSNBC and Fox, um, on the floor of the Senate. Now, he said, I spoke out against it, but you know what was never found? And the report showed us this. Not a single piece of evidence, not a single written document. And the CIA, even though they love to burn documents, also thrives on paper. They fucking love paper. They write everything down because they're idiots, right? And, they, and they're, like, they're, they're like the fucking cat burglar that wants to get caught, you know, like the, the serial killer who's like, I'll fuck this one up because I kind of really want to get caught, you know? That's the CIA because they put pa- everything goes on paper, right? Or, or on computers today. But they couldn't find one shred of evidence that Brennan had ever opposed this program interesting and then the report implicates him in the opposite way of actually having kind of supported it and been involved when the report comes out right very late in the obama administration i believe right it was pretty late in the administration because brennan was already head of cia 2015 is that what you said yep 2015 yeah that's when the summary actually came out okay right so so what's interesting about this is like okay my last connection the Afghan papers come out, and one of the key people implicated is the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley. Four years ago, Obama was still president. America was great, pre-Trump. The Obama <laughs> Pax, the Pax Obama comma, or whatever it was, right? It's all a myth. <laughs> Four years ago, when this report comes out, the summary of the report, John Brennan, a key person implicated in the torture program, was head of the CIA. And to me, that's the connection. I mean, there's a million connections, and Ryan brought out a billion of them, all kinds of directions if we want. But the key connection for me is that there is no responsibility. There is no punishment. Nothing ever happens to these people. We write reports. Ryan, what'd you call it? Too little, too late, a year late, a dollar short. Day late and a dollar short. Day late and a dollar short. These reports come out. Everyone's shocked, shocked, right? <gasps> we torture people. Oh, so now we're going to punish them? Like people are going to be held accountable? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just going to write a story about it. Yeah, 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 but they broke the law. And some of them are still in charge. We're not going to let them still be in charge, are we? Well, well, yeah, well, of course they are, because they're heroes, because they work for the intelligence and the military community, and they're heroes. They're gods. They're saints. We're going to canonize them, in fact. Actually, we're going to promote them. We're going to promote them. And, you're, and then you're like, wait, wait, wait. So why did we bother doing the report? Well, it sells newspapers. Yeah, yeah, but don't we have a public responsibility? Don't we have an obligation to hold people accountable because these reports came out and we got guys in charge of the fucking show who, who broke the law, who lied to us, who were incompetent? We're going to let Mark Milley stay at the head of the Joint Chiefs? We're going to let John Brennan finish out his tour as director of the CIA when he was implicated in the worst scandal in CIA potentially history or at least 21st century history? And the answer always in the United States of irresponsibility is yes. We'll continue to promote them, and there will be no 
no accountability. That's the story of the report, and you must watch it. You must watch it. Well, even beyond the accountability part, like say that we overlook that, that there is no real effort to change the underlying systems that created these things in the first place. And that to me is the bigger tragedy. You know, yeah, we can hold accountable. We can, we could, you know, say that we did like a, you know, an international criminal court or like a Nuremberg type thing for all of these problems. You know, the, the underlying causes that got us to this place would still be in place. And then we would be in that, we would still be placated, right? Because we would be like, oh, we held some people accountable. But like, that doesn't fucking change what actually happened and the structures and place and the, weird, crazy legal loopholes that the CIA can use to do stuff. And just in my own limited experience with them, and, you know, <laughs> it's insane. Like, the the way that they parse through words, and they go through it a lot in the report, like Eastman, um, who's the uh, Office of Legal Counsel for the CIA, is sitting with John Yu, and they're sitting there talking about, like, the specific words that they can use and how they're going to define them as so as to say this is perfectly legal. And one of the things that I love is that they say the word unique. And he's like, well, what are we saying unique means? And he says, unique, we're going to say it means any information that can be derived by, uh, that can't be derived by other means, like any other types of collection. But as they showed, in the fucking movie, like all of the information that they said they were getting from enhanced interrogation was gotten through other means, through either traditional rapport building, which has been proven for decades now to be the most effective way to actually get information out of um, prisoners. And then also, or just normal methods, you know, collection, emails, phones, signals collection, like anything that we do in the community to actually figure shit out. That's how it was. That's how they got the information. It wasn't through torturing people. And he, he mentions that the CIA did in 1978, their own psychologists had said that they, that torture doesn't work. And then like, they didn't fucking listen to that. And it's just, they, they have no institutional memory. Everybody just cares about getting the mission done and they don't care about the strategic impacts or the effectiveness and that's just oh like it just really bothers me and then everybody comes to you know to their rescue and that i think that was cool like john ham's character he played mike mcdonough who was um uh forget who he was he was high up in the um in the obama administration and they're sitting there when they're talking about coming out with the report and it was diane feinstein by the way her office um she, uh, and Annette Benning is playing her and she does a phenomenal job. But, so, yeah. So they're sitting there, they're sitting there, um, having the minority meeting. This is right after the 2014 elections when they were going to lose control of the Senate. And they, um, they're sitting there and they're like, oh, we need to do all this part of unity. And she's like, we still need to bring up the support and Mark Udall also, like, stuck his neck out and ultimately lost his election. But like he stuck his neck out and he was like, look, I only have a couple more days here. We need to get this out of here. And Mike Madonna's like, oh, the Republicans are gonna skewer us if we do this. 
they're going to say it's like partisan hack stuff. And Diane Feinstein said, uh, I don't know if she actually said this, but it's a pretty awesome line where she says, I would rather be, it's like, I, I would rather throw away my political career for to tell the truth. So I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like that, where she's basically saying like she wants this to come out because it's the right thing to do and damn the politics. And I'm like, that is so few and far between when we actually hear that. But it's nice that, that like, there are people with integrity in these kind of situations. They just unfortunately are, you know, they're, they're not, there's not enough people in that situation. And this is how it continues. This is how people continue to act this way. And beyond the fact that we don't hold anybody accountable, we don't ever try to change the structures that create these kind of situations in the first place. And that, to me, like I said, is the bigger tragedy. And I would just like to jump on um, real quick about my personal experience at 12 months at Camp Cropper, which was the high-value detainee facility in Iraq. Um, we were an Ohio Army National Guard unit of infantry and tankers, and we were not trained in detainee operations. We were told we were doing route security as a combat security company. Um, I believe looking back on it now, as well as after reading Philip Zimbardo's book called The Psychology of Evil, Philip Zimbardo, he did the Stanford prison experiment and he also was a key witness in mental health support for the Abu Ghraib uh, correction officers that were charged. Um, they, you know, they de-individualize both the soldier and the detainee. They dehumanize us. Um, they also, they put, so you don't, you put the responsibility of your actions on a uniform instead of on yourself. You think of yourself as the uniform. You don't think of yourself as an individual. We arrived January 2005, shortly after the Abu Ghraib scandal was released, and they removed all video and audio surveillance from Camp Cropper. So I believe um, with intent, they put untrained personnel there with no oversight because they realized if we want these tortures to continue and not get pushback, well, it got leaked through some through some phone pictures. So the next soldiers we send to a detainee operation in Iraq will just eliminate any photographic or audio evidence. So I have I'm one of the only soldiers that I've come across that went to Iraq or Afghanistan and I'm like a ghost. I basically I I I mean I have proof, but I don't have hardly any pictures. I have primo pictures and demo pictures. But it was like we were ghosts in Iraq and we were left there with no oversight, no training, um, nothing at all, just basically thrown there to the wolves. And it was they knew it was a recipe for torture. Henry, when uh, when you watched the report, like. And we've all hit on a bunch of different angles, but I think what's cool is each of us see something else, you know, or, or we, I think we all agree on the, the content and, and the implications. But I think what's interesting about having four guys on the pod or three guys on a typical pod is that, you know, we all 
hone in on something different, highlight something different. Well, well, you know, if you had one, what was the what was the big shock or the big takeaway or, or, or the lack of shock that you felt when you watched the report? I think the thing that that um, and this was from the, the earlier story, not so much from the, the plot of the movie, but the fact that the CIA was willing to spy on the, the committee as it was working. And, you know, I, I um, going back to what you were talking about, I, I don't I don't understand how the Obama administration ended without all of this, and especially the involvement of people like John Brennan becoming a much bigger scandal than it was. Um, and of course, nobody in Washington wanted to make a big scandal out of it. They, you know, the Dems didn't want to embarrass Obama or people on Obama's team. And the Republicans certainly wouldn't want to push it back on Bush, even though they might know it to be true or think that it is what, what needs to happen. Um, it's a pretty fucked up, profound notion to have your own government spy on you when you're doing your official business as a government employee, you know, the, the investigators on there. And I, it's a, it's a level of betrayal that you, they, they don't often demonstrate much, but certainly has many, many other historical points to it that, you know, we, um, like, uh, what's his name? Jim Clapper coming out about the, the prison program and the, and the collecting everybody's metadata on their, on their phone calls that you know why didn't everybody's heads explode and part of it like i just said you know nobody wanted to get anybody anybody on their side of the team um in trouble and it just got used to things sweeping under the rug and and ryan going back to what you mentioned about that the the cameras and stuff were taken away that you know i'm sure when the chain the mp chain of command that was at abu Ghraib they had thought to themselves that these cameras will protect our soldiers. You know, not only will we be able to see how they interact with the detainees, um, we'll be able to go back and look at what happened in the past. And so all this nasty stuff happens. It gets laid on a bunch of privates as opposed to the people actually in command. I think there was a one star that ended up getting bumped down to a, to a colonel because of it. Um, but everybody else were MP peons in, you know, E5 and below. Um, and so instead of making it better, instead of saying, okay, that, that we, we caught our guys doing this, we have pictures, we have video, they're like, no, we're just going to get rid of the cameras so that that way that they're in, in, a, in a future time of this happening, there is literally no evidence, which means no one on, no, no one on our, on our uh, Army uniform team can get in trouble at least. Philip Zimbardo, in his book, The Psychology of Evil, he goes into what you're saying, Henry, as far as he makes amazing case and he testified in military court. This isn't a case of a few bad apples. This is a case of a bad barrel. It's yep. a system. It's not the individual. No, when I when I was reading about the, the the punishments for everybody, and I was astonished that that one star actually got in trouble. That someone that high of rank, and I think she was a, uh, I think she was a National Guard officer. Not that that makes too much of a difference, but um, 
you know, because because we don't we don't actually get people in trouble for things most of the time, it, you know, unless there's act witnesses and those witnesses are willing to put it all on the line like you do with your writing, Danny. It, there, other than that, no one wants to no one wants to have the fight that's gonna bite the hand that feeds them. Or you'll end up like Chelsea Manning, reality winner, yep. and all the other heroes of America. Yep. Yeah, or well, under a bridge to... like me after this impeachment article. <laughs> just to inject some levity, um, I was glad that I was watching this by myself because I was yelling at the TV a lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because like, my wife does not like it when... Um, when I watch like military movies or like intelligence community movies, because I'm always critiquing them. And I'm sure you guys have been in the same space, but I, yeah, I'm just like, Oh man, I'm glad that she wasn't here because I was yelling at the TV, like basically nonstop when I was watching this movie. I'll have to watch stuff in chunks. I'll watch the first third and scream for a while and then put it away for a month and come back and try to finish it just so I can say I, I saw the whole thing. But yeah, I had same thing. I have yet to personally watch the report, and I, I plan on watching it eventually, but it's too close to home. I, I lived it. You know, I dream about it. Um, I think about it all the time. I don't need the report to tell me what I witnessed for 12 months. Right. Yeah, I mean, the American people need it, you know, um, because like the Afghan papers, we may have already surmised this. and You already experienced it. and. In the in the in the prison you worked in and and, and the gray site you worked in and then just like I experienced it in Afghanistan so it didn't surprise me and you, you know you guys experienced it in Iraq but uh, just a couple of quick things on this um, they really will be quick um, Ryan earlier you talked about opportunity costs about how much our military budget is and yet like the 2.5 million people who were like kicked off SNAP or food stamps um, the two uh, <laughs> experts in quotes, that the CIA hired. They were contractors, okay? Uh, Bruce Jensen and uh, James Mitchell, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to work for the SEER program. Like, so they used to work for special forces, like teaching like pilots and Green Berets, like how to fight against torture, like how to resist torture. Um, they got hired by the CIA to teach them how to torture, right? So they just like inverted it and like broke the law. And of course, there was no accountability for them. Actually, there was accountability. They did receive something for their work and you know what they received money 81 81 million let that sink in the two guys who taught the cia how to break break the law were paid 81 million dollars now their contract was actually for 180 million but they only got paid 81 million of it which to me is wrong you know you gotta you gotta live up to your contracts you know (laughs) what they were torturing people well i mean where's the other 99 million you know, let's be fair. This is the United States of America. This is the land of contracts and capitalism. Anyway, I think it's wrong. But no, these guys got paid that. And the thing is, they didn't even have any expertise in it. It was a joke. They, they, that's what, you know, the, and the movie shows this. Like one of them, I, I don't remember. Do you remember what he did his like PhD in? It wasn't even anything related to terrorism or, or like. It was um, or family torture. dietitian, like family uh, nutrition. That's what I was going to jump Holy in and say. I, be- shit. I, I believe he was acting as if he had a background in psychology, and he did not. <laughs> well, they, they did. They were like psychologists, but they all did their PhDs in psychology and nothing related to counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, um, 
any uh, like interrogation like none of them had ever done any interrogations in themselves but they 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 gave they gave the torture program cover by saying that these techniques were approved by such and such psychologist who's certified and da 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 that it, it it they were like you know the very bottom shit of the barrel when it comes to you know professionalism and actually caring about their craft because real psychologists should have been completely against that ethically. It, it, it breaks so many different boundaries of what they're supposed to remain in, in terms of trying to help their clients. And so um, it gave it gave cover to people like Cheney that, you know, we have these, these, like you said earlier, Danny, our, our love for, for, uh, for euphemisms, that these enhanced interrogation techniques, it's not torture, were approved by these psychologists. And then, of course, it also gives them a scapegoat because now, after the the years of uh, lawsuits that involve those two guys and the other information that co that's come out, um, yeah, shit, I lost my point. Um, well, I mean, you're making a, a really important point. But also, the American Psychological Association was founded and started because of military psyops. That's the whole reason the American Psychological Association was started as part of the military industrial complex. Yeah, which shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you know, w one of the things about these guys, there was a, the select committee in their report, quote, said that the two guys, right, Jessen and Mitchell, did, quote, did not have specialized knowledge of Al-Qaeda, a background in counterterrorism, or any relevant cultural or linguistic experience. Wow. And, and one of the ways you know something's torture, there's always little evidence that something's wrong. You just gotta like scrape away at the gilded cover, you know? Um, no doctors, there had to be a medical, you know, we're, we're Americans, I mean, we're, we're, we're very humane. There has to be a doctor there, right? There has to be a medical personnel to oversee these interrogations. Well, they did have one, but they couldn't have a doctor. They had to have a physician's assistant. Wait, why, why, why wouldn't they have a real doctor? Oh, because it's a, they, a doctor would immediately lose his license if he was involved in anything that was even close to torture because it goes against the Hippocratic oath of first do no harm. Oh, that's the same reason that doctors aren't there when we lethally inject our criminals, some of whom are innocent, on death row. <gasps> Maybe that's telling. Maybe that's instructive. Maybe we should stop doing it, right? I mean, th this is the kind of evidence. Uh, you know, how many people could have been paid in SNAP with that $80 million? I, I don't even want to do the math because it's fucking insane. These guys, look, but, but there's a, look, elites never care about qualifications. Like, dude, if you try to get a job at goddamn McDonald's and you're just a dude, like, you might not get the job because there's always that, like, quandary, that catch-22 for any, like, low-level job where they're like, well, do you have experience? And you're like, well, well no, I mean. I, I need to get a job in order to get experience. And they're like, well, we can't give you a job without experience. And you're like, no, no, but I just graduated college. So I need like a first job and then I'll have experience. And they're like, no, sorry, we can only take people with experience. Right? You, you can't even get a fucking job at Walmart without experience sometimes. But in American elite government positions, be they ambassadors, be they these psychologists, these faux experts, you don't have to have any qualifications to get like a high paying or high level government job. And my favorite example and it's just one instructive example, Brownie. Remember Brownie, remember Bush? He said, heck of a job, Brownie. Infamously, after, after the Hurricane Katrina debacle, when Brownie, can't remember what his real name was, totally fucked it up. Um, totally fucked up the FEMA response. He was the head of FEMA. 
the head of the Federal Emergency Response Agency, right? What was his qualification exactly when Bush appointed him? Well, he had given a lot of money to the Bush campaign, but he must have had some qualifications. What did he do before that? He did some sort of job at like a local, like at a municipal level for like disaster management. Is that what he did? Did he work for the Army Corps of Engineers perhaps? No, 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 no. His last job was as head of the Arabian Horse Committee, the American <laughs> Arabian Horse Committee. It's a true story. It's a true story. Nobody went to jail. There were bodies floating down fucking Bourbon Street. Okay, like I'm exaggerating a little. But like, seriously. And Bush was like, heck of a job, Brownie, on TV. Bush didn't get impeached for that, right? He didn't get impeached. You appointed an Arabian horse specialist to be in charge of the most important emergency management agency in the United States and nothing happened? Look, this is just instructive. It, it tells us that what we're seeing in the report and in these papers is, is business as usual. And, and we're going to have to beg from the mountaintops because we have what we call principles. But, but the hardest part about it is, is that our mental health is suffering, at least mine is, because mm -hmm. this is business as usual. And that's the frustration for me. I, I have to um, exit the podcast, gentlemen, and I apologize. Uh, parenting duties call. So I just wanted to end on a couple quick reminders um, for everyone. It's very important. Seven countries we have active military operations in. Bipartisan, overwhelmingly, $738 billion defense budget just approved. And then I'll end with this quote from Jeffrey Jay that I said earlier on his paper after Vietnam in pursuit of scapegoats. This burden isolates the veteran and will freeze them in an issues in the attitude of perpetual combat until the issues of war are confronted in the national conscience. Keep fighting imperialism, keep fighting capitalism, and thanks for having me on. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, brother. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not do